Welcome to episode 32 of The Case Against with Gary Meese. We're going to be getting into the, the second book in my series on the uh, West Memphis Three series of books called Where Are the Monsters Go? We finished up the first book and it only took us 31 episodes so maybe we'll get through with this one in 31 or 32 episodes. As I explain in what I'm going to read today I'm being very thorough for a very good reason and uh, you know if I just simply wanted to write a true crime book without building building as strong a case as possible I would have written a smaller book and in fact I have a smaller book which is an edited revised condensed version of these two books called the case against the West Memphis three killers which is arguably more readable for the for casual reader uh, I think I improved the narrative flow somewhat I hope I did certainly my intent and uh, they're all available on all three titles are available on uh, Amazon in print and Kindle editions and uh, the case against the West Memphis three killers is somewhat more affordable this is probably going to be a relatively short episode um, it's kind of a summing up to where we are at this point based on uh, the evidence presented in Blood on Black and uh, and I get into the I get into some of this uh, some of the uh, rationale behind the prologue and, and the two volumes in the, my reading today but I just want to reiterate that this is the second of two volumes about the West Memphis Three case and we'll get right into it there is the myth of the West Memphis Three innocent teenagers railroaded by malicious police and prosecutors into murder convictions because of the way they dressed and the music they listened to. There being no evidence against them except the prejudices of southern white Christians. And then there is the reality. Three criminally inclined young thugs involved in occultism who gleefully tortured three eight-year-old boys and then brought the justice system down upon them based on multiple factors including a series of confessions, failed lie detector tests, failed alibis, eyewitness sightings, and a history of violence. The second volume in this series, Falling Blood on Black, continues to examine the evidence against Jesse Miskelly Jr., Jason Baldwin, and Damian Eccles in the murders of Christopher Byers, Michael Moore, and Stevie Branch on May 5, 1993. Miskelly, Baldwin, and Eccles met up that afternoon just outside Lakeshore Estates Trailer Park. 
which is located between Marion, Arkansas and West Memphis, Arkansas. According to the Multiple Confessions of Miskelly, Eccles and Baldwin were drinking beer. Miskelly had a bottle of whiskey jammed down into his pants. Miskelly had been told the plan was to go to West Memphis and beat up some boys. They walked about two miles into woods known as Robin Hood or Robin Hood Hills, just behind the Blue Beacon Truck Wash located on one of the network of service roads in West Memphis, Arkansas, where East-West Interstate 40 and North-South Interstate 55 briefly merged. Eccles knew the woods well, having lived in the nearby Mayfair Apartments, frequently walking through the area as a shortcut between his home in West Memphis and his friends in the trailer parks, and having been spotted in the woods recently by an acquaintance. Michael, Michael, Stevie, and Christopher, all second graders at Weaver Elementary School, lived south of the woods and, like other children in the area, visited the woods frequently to play. That afternoon, they were spotted heading toward Robin Hood around 6, close to the time the killers entered from the north. When Eccles heard the children approaching, he began making sounds to lure them in while Miss Skelly and Baldwin hid. Then, according to the confessions of Miskelly, and indicated by the blood patterns at the scene and other evidence, the teens jumped the three eight-year-olds, beat them viciously, stripped them of their clothes, mutilated Stevie's face, castrated Christopher, sexually molested them, hog-tied them, and dumped them in a muddy ditch where Michael and Stevie drowned. Christopher was already dead from bleeding out from his wounds before he was placed in the water. Miskelly quickly left the scene, which was scrupulously cleaned up. Eccles was spotted walking along the service road near the crime scene later that evening in muddy clothes. After frantic parents sparked an extensive search for the missing children, their bodies were discovered the next afternoon by law enforcement officers. Tales of strange rituals held in the woods by mysterious strangers spread quickly among the crowd gathered near the crime scene. As detectives and other officers gathered information and talked to witnesses or potential suspects, Eccles quickly drew the scrutiny of officers. Besides the talk among the boys' neighbors, the ritualistic aspects of the murder, including the way the boys were bound, and timing possibly influenced by and timing possibly influenced by setting, proximity to a pagan holiday and celestial events, further suggested occultism as an impetus for the killings. Local officers were familiar with Eccles as a dangerous, mentally ill teenager immersed in witchcraft. Among the many tips coming into police were reports that Eccles had been seen near the crime scene that night and that he was heavily involved in a cult. A series of police interviews with an all-too-knowing Eccles did nothing but deepen suspicions. Eccles failed a lie detector test, thereafter refusing to talk. Police heard that Eccles had been telling friends about his involvement in the murders. Vicki Hutchison, an acquaintance of Miss Kelly, who was also friends with the Byers family, decided to play detective. 
As a result of her investigation, such as it was, and statements from her son Aaron, who had been a playmate of the dead boys, the West Memphis police brought in Miss Kelly for routine questions about his acquaintance with Eccles. After he too failed a lie detector test, he gave the first of a number of confessions about his involvement along with Eccles and Baldwin in the murders. Arrest quickly followed. And this occurred on June 3rd, 1993. The murders were on May 5th, 1993. Baldwin never offered an alibi at trial after a series of conflicting statements about his activities that day. Eccles admitted in testimony that his description of his alibi changed to meet circumstances. Miskelly tried out several alibis in between his confessions, none of which were sufficient to convince jurors that he had nothing to do with the murders. The real-life horror story continues to play out in the second volume of this series with Eccles' background and mental illness extensively documented in the first book, Blood on Black, along with incriminating details on the other two killers. Baldwin and Eccles had been given an opportunity to respond to questions regarding the case, but gave no comment, blocking contact via social media. Contact via social media with the reclusive Jesse Miskelly was blocked. I also sent him a letter at his uh, uh, at address that was left that was posted as being how to get in contact with Miskelly and got no response. Questions posted via social media to Matt Baldwin, Stacy Sanders Specht, Pamela Metcalf, who was also Pam Eccles and, and also Pamela Hutchison, uh, Angela Gail Grinnell, Constance, Constance Eccles Mount, also known as Michelle Eccles, Garrett Schwarting, Kenneth Littlebit Watkins, Stephanie Dollar, Holly George Thorpe, Jennifer Bearden, and John E. Douglas were not answered. The former Deanna Holcomb, who still lives in Arkansas under another name, gave no answer to a Facebook query on an account that otherwise appears active. I also mailed a letter to her home and got no response. Heather Dawn Clyatt Hollis threatened legal action to prevent her name from being used, which was an empty threat on a number of legal grounds, and otherwise refused to explain the many discrepancies in her stories. Dominie Ferris, the former Dominie Tear, graciously and freely gave a phone interview. Susie Brewer, uh, Miss Kelly's girlfriend, responded with a forthright, honest update on her troubled relationship with Miss Kelly. Much of the following was drawn from the official record in the words of actual witnesses, friends, and neighbors of the killers and their victims. Uh, this is, doesn't really apply so much to the podcast, but I'm going to read it anyway. Some mis misspellings, etc., in the transcripts have been corrected to facilitate comprehension, obvious transcription errors, or lack of punctuation have been addressed, if not completely resolved. Excerpts from transcripts have been minimally edited for readability, sense, and flow of narrative. Some information, such as the multiple confessions, has been repeated to set forth as complete a record as feasible. Quotes represent evidence as recorded, as well as common usage in the Arkansas Delta. 
Deputy Prosecuting Attorney John Fogelman once said it would take a book of a thousand pages to tell the story of the case. These two books, not quite a thousand pages, but a whole bunch of, several hundred of them, more than several hundred, about 800, by no means exhaust the topic. If the case was not so controversial, the story could have been told in a standard true crime format of some 300 pages or so, which is what I did with the case against the West Memphis Three Killers. Given the one-sided narrative that has dominated this case, these two volumes have the stated purpose of showing the case against the West Memphis Three Killers. No attempt was made to offer the many counter-arguments made by defense attorneys and others benefiting materially from the case, or explore the views of the many virtue-signaling supporters of the West Memphis Three Killers. Since the overwhelming bias of Hollywood, the media, and academe has been generously aired for many years. Other than those already noted, any errors are the authors. And I'll note that I occasionally make an error in the podcast and I try to correct it in the notes if I catch it in time. It hasn't happened very often, but it has happened and more than likely will happen again. I try to be accurate. I've gotten very little criticism, very, really no criticism on specifics uh, as far as the books. I've had criticism, of, of course, but mostly that it's all lies or this is just made up or more satanic panic, that sort of stuff. I don't, you know, not that I, I can't really take those kind of criticisms that seriously unless they've got some sort of specifics attached to them. If they don't like, if readers don't like, and mostly non-readers, I don't think they're actually reading the books, but if my critics don't like what's written, they can address the specifics or even the, even more general topics in some sort of reasoned way, but, you know, the truth is it just doesn't happen. And this is very short. I'm not going to apologize for that. Seems like I spent about six hours getting ready for this, and it's over before I, over with before I know it. But such is the case with these 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 kind of uh, podcast. Anyway, that's all from me this time. Uh, next time, my intention is to actually veer a bit off the West Memphis Three case and talk uh, about another case that was featured in another uh, documentary. You know, the West Memphis Three case was, a, was the subject of four documentaries, which is hard to believe, but they're all there. Uh, Paradise Lost, one, two, and three in West of Memphis. And I am going to be looking at another case and another documentary and really getting into what I've been interested in lately, which is not just the, the superficial errors or omissions in documentaries and uh, the falsehoods that are perpetrated in these documentaries but some of the 
structure, societal structures behind those documentaries. Uh, there's a whole little subculture out there that's working very hard to build uh, a lack of confidence in the justice system, uh, the police, prosecution, courts, the laws in general, and uh, this is the so what you really see on the screen is really the tip of the iceberg of what's actually going on. There's a lot. There's a lot of challenges in court. Uh, a lot of you know defense attorneys have learned they can uh, allege almost anything and get away with it as long uh, almost anything as long as there's some you know tiny basis of fact there. You know, a piece of DNA that doesn't just doesn't quite match up with something else or even a lack of DNA. Or if there is DNA, as in the Rodney Reed case, then they explain it away. Or they also have done that in the Stephen Avery case. Two, uh, two easy examples. OJ is, of course, the most obvious example of somebody who got away with murder because the jury didn't comprehend what they were listening to or didn't care to comprehend. They had another agenda in their mind. Um, I'm going to be looking more and more as I go along into other documentaries, other cases. Uh, I've explored the West Memphis Three case pretty thoroughly over the years. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be exploring it pretty thoroughly for at least the next year or so. And, you know, after that, I'm not sure what else I really, I'm really going to have to say about it until there are new developments. Uh, since there's no ongoing investigation, the defense has, there's no prospects that the defense is going to come up with any, anything new or that they're active in any sense. The three killers have made no efforts whatsoever to try to establish any factual basis for their so-called innocence. They did plead guilty using an Alford plea and released in 2011. Um, so at some point, West Memphis Three, as a subject in and of itself, somewhat dries up. Uh, I, uh, at one point, I was thinking of actually looking at what went on with the fundraising for that, and that's actually going to play into some of my research, but uh, it ties in with it. Uh, what went on, went on with the um, fundraising and the publicity and the P, uh, you know, the publicity, the marketing, the PR, the ties into Hollywood, the ties into certain law schools, the t ties to uh, certain elites, mostly in Hollywood, mostly in New York, as you would expect, though some in Chicago as well. And all in all, uh, what, we're, what I intend to show is that there is a huge conspiracy, an open conspiracy, but a conspiracy afoot to cast doubt upon the entire workings of the uh, justice system. The, you know, and, they, and the, the propaganda that's being used and such things as when they see us, Ava DuVernay's uh, fabrication of what went on with the Central Park Five case 
is an almost perfect example of that. I don't know that much about what happened with the boys in prison and their afterlife because I didn't really look into that all that much. And mostly because I didn't really care. The only thing that to me that's highly relevant is the uh, is the interaction between uh, Corey, what's his name, and and the actual the the the, one, the guy who's now taking the blame for it. I know those names. I just can't. I wasn't thinking about that when I started talking. I just can't think of the guys. And I read a whole book about that case, but uh, his case. And he was a horrible, he is, was, is a horrible monster. And uh, speaking of horrible monsters, uh, the book title, Where the Monsters Go, was from a quote by Damien Eccles, who stated that he wanted to go where the monsters go. Now, I will say that Eccles has been extraordinarily successful in his aspiration, because wherever Damien Eccles goes, there goes a monster. See you next time.